Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast to fill your soul, challenge your mind, and make you brave. I'm your host, Joy Clarkson, and an evangelist for all things good, true, and beautiful. So make yourself a cup of tea, find somewhere comfortable, and let's dive in to this week's episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Speaking with Joy. I am happy to welcome you back to another episode in the series that I've been calling in my mind the Escape Cast, uh, which are just uh, episodes aimed at giving you an hour of sanity and beauty and goodness and wholesome distraction in this strange time that we are all living through with the COVID-19 pandemic. And one of the things that I have been so delighted by and actually kind of grateful for is that having this empty space kind of pushed me to reach out to some people who I have enjoyed their work or admired their work from afar. And either either because I actually was too busy or because in my brain, I had the perception of being too busy. I just kind of hadn't reached out to, but I've gotten to reach out to and chat with many people that I, I'm just glad that I finally did it. And today I have the great fun of welcoming one of those people onto my show. And that is Gracie Olmstead. So welcome to Speaking with Joy, Gracie. Thank you so much for having me. It is an honor and a joy to get to be on the podcast with you. Oh, well, I'm so excited for today's conversation, uh, mainly because they've been things that I've wanted to ask you about uh, before. So now we get to talk about it and have a conversation over a podcast. So yeah. Gracie, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you? Where are you? And what do you do? What are you passionate about? So I grew up in rural Idaho in a, a family of four, two younger brothers and older sister, um, and was homeschooled out there, grew up there, and then came out to Virginia for college and ended up meeting a wonderful young man in the Air Force getting married and settling here. And we have two little girls now, ages four and one and a half. And I primarily work from home as a freelance journalist, a columnist. I write about agriculture and place, community, um, various aspects of literature. I love doing book reviews. And then I'm actually writing a book currently about the farm community in Idaho where I grew up, kind of considering its growth and the changes it's undergone, its development as its own ecosystem, and kind of considering my own exodus in light of that and asking some questions about what we owe to the past and to place. And so that's been a very long project, but one that I'm really excited about. I believe it should be released, published next February, as long as that's not thrown off at all by everything happening now. I'm not exactly sure where we will be at when we launch into 2021. So we just, we're taking things one day at a time right now. Oh, that's so exciting. I, I remember you writing me about a year ago, I think when you were just in the fledgling stages of writing that. And I'm so excited for that book to come out and to read your thoughts because I think that that question of exodus is such an interesting one. I will talk about this later in the podcast, but I know that you've done some writing and interviews with Wendell Berry. And it's funny because I love Wendell Berry's writing and Sarah and I, my sister always joke that we're, we uh, are always evangelizing for Wendell Berry in Oxford, which Oxford just like, I think because he's so specific to Kentucky and, you know, he writes about farming. It's so 
foreign in some ways to many people's mind at that point. But I think we were really compelled by by that idea of place because when you're in somewhere like Oxford or Scotland where I am now, a lot of people have a sense of placelessness or trying to figure out how to make new places or or if one should be faithful to the places that one came from or how one can be faithful. So I think it's just a really interesting question that whether you came from a, a farming community or not, um, it's one that kind of plagues our strange worlds. Um, so I'm so excited to talk with you about all of these things, but I figure we should start with the thing that's on all of our brains right now, which is how are you staying sane in these kind of strange times and what's going on in your corner of the world? You were telling me a little bit about it before we got on the recordings. Yes. Well, I have been, of course, primarily occupied in keeping the four-year-old and the one-and-a-half-year-old happy and healthy amidst this season of just being very much focused on the home. And I'm I'm lucky in the sense that as someone who works primarily from home, not too much has changed mm. in our day. Um, there is a sense in which the days do all run together because we're not out <laughs> and about and seeing people, but they haven't actually noticed that anything <laughs> has happened, which I find really funny. Uh, my four-year-old will occasionally ask about her friends, but as soon as we FaceTime with them, she just kind of then goes about her merry business. <laughs> so there's this beautiful innocence about little ones, I think, that can add a lot of cheer to this um, season amidst all of its um, strange, chaotic upheavals. But we've been enjoying a lot of tea parties, and we've been doing a lot of baking, probably far too much baking, <laughs> <laughs> and lots of gardening, which is one of my favorite uh, opportunities to get outside and, and get them occupied, get their fingers in the dirt. Um, it's always so much fun. And so they've been helping me plant a lot of seeds f for the spring, which has been really wonderful. Um, but we've also had just some really strange things in this season of being at home all of the time that have added extra layers of difficulty and um, maybe challenge. You can think of it as a game, perhaps, or in a <laughs> makes it more fun. So we, we were without internet for over two weeks and it still is only kind of working haphazardly. So we just take it one day at a time. And then as of yesterday, we have no running water and we're not sure because of some pipes that broke in our town, we're not sure if we're going to get running water again until Saturday or Sunday. Oh my gosh. Well, another thing that I'm just kind of taking one day at a time, it, it took me an hour to get all my dishes washed this morning just because oh. there had been some buildup <laughs> that I had been putting <laughs> off due to the fact that we didn't have running water. Um, so, yeah, that's that's been really interesting. I have deepened sympathy for all the wonderful pioneer women who <laughs> buckets of water from the well to the house and the well to the house to do laundry and dishes and um, what a monumental undertaking that must have been. I have a little taste now. <laughs> I know. I, I feel like in our own little way, we're all, did you ever play that computer game? It was like one of the early computer games, Oregon Trail, when you were growing I, up. I don't think that we had a computer at that point, but okay. I've heard stories about it. Yeah. Well, it was this, it was, we had like a family computer, I think in the early 2000s. And that was like when the game was around, but it was like trying to survive through the Oregon Trail being a pioneer. And it would be like, you know, 
you, you had to kind of watch out for everything. You had to not get the plague. You had to not, which I guess was dysentery, I think, when you're when you're playing uh, the Orkin Trail. But then you also had to keep, um, you know, your hygiene up and your 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 larder stocked and everything. So I feel like we're all in in a little bit of a um, an Orkin Trail game ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> and I think you're right. I love that you think about it as a game. I think that that does that does help uh, orient yourself. And with kids, too, we were just saying this before we, we hit record. I feel like, you know, at this stage in my life, I've grown pretty hardened in my expectations of, of what life should consist of, right? Like, it should consist of running water and being able to leave my house. Whereas when you're four you know, you've only had three years really to gain a sense of what the world should be and what you should expect of it. So when crazy things happen, it's a little bit more kind of like you don't have tons of years to back up. It just seems like life is happening and everything is always strange. So it's easier to be a little resilient, maybe. And perhaps easier to find the wonder and the joy of things that us as adults think of as inconveniences, because I think we build our entire world around efficiency and productivity And going a certain speed and pace and um, all of that is kind of thrown out the window at this point in time. And so it's it's a challenge, I think, to us whether we are going to be able to pull back mm-hmm. and embrace the lack of efficiency in our day to day or not. And um, I, I think I mentioned to you before, my husband is the sort of person who I realized does not expect life to be easy. Uh, He has an expectation of having to work hard and to fix things that break down and to walk through difficult seasons and also has an expectation that God will be present through those things. And I think those two things together give him a joy and resilience that I really admire. And so I think I've also noticed in this strange season that my husband and I can really set the tone of our home and if we embrace things with an air of humor and fun and just kind of rolling with the punches, then our daughters feel at ease. They feel peace. Mm -hmm. They don't feel anxious. And um, that's definitely one of my biggest goals for this time is that even as we perhaps feel some worry and stress that we would not carry that over into our home so that hopefully Mm -hmm. the ethos that rubs off on them is that we are going to go on an adventure together and we don't know how long it will last, but we will pray through it and we will look for the joy in it. And hopefully we will have running water soon. <laughs> <laughs> I, For your sake, I certainly hope that you do. Uh, no, I think that's so true. And it's something I've always really appreciated about my mom. And I've heard her articulate now that we're older, she would always say that parents are kind of the thermometer of a home. And so if kids know that mom is, you know, is treating everything like it's a disaster, then they're like, oh, I guess I should too. Um, Whereas if there's kind of a sense of resilience and fun, then they feel like they're able to do that too. Um, But yeah, I love what you said about we're also used to kind of evaluating our lives based on efficiency and productivity, which are such vague words when you think about it. And it's it's funny to me too. I think a lot of life... um, especially in the modern world, is kind of based almost on a factory model, right? That you go, you punch your time in and you should have a product out in a in a regular rhythm that has nothing to do with the seasons or, you know, what stage you are in life. And it's funny to see how now that really has been made impossible, right? Like we're all at home. We all have 
kids crawling all over us or no schedules. And yet I think a lot of the frustration that a lot of us are experiencing is because we're trying to import that productivity and that mode of life into our homes when in a way I was realizing I've kind of relaxed into the last week a lot more than I did the first week when we were all quarantined because I kind of stopped living with that expectation of productivity. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just been a lot richer to be like, you know what? We're, the nice thing is it's not just like me being a radical wanting to like enjoy my home right now. Like everyone is doing this. So if ever there were a moment to embrace a different mode of being, um, it is now because literally everyone must. And, um, but I think that just kind of reveals how fundamentally we orient our lives, not around seasons or this or that, but around productivity. And it kind of has been helpful for me to even see how much that's present in my life and try to question it and, um, and lean into a weird season, but a season that could also be rich and that could be kind of home centered, um, in a different way than I'm, than I usually do, even though I love home and love creating home. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, it's interesting because I have been thinking a lot lately about how um, and listening to some really good thinkers talk about our expectations for constant exponential mm-hmm. and steady growth um, that we expect not to have a sort of cyclical, as you said, seasons of, of growth and then decline or of rest or of stasis, but that we constantly expect things to keep moving up and out and forward. And that's just not a very natural thing. It's it's a very artificial thing that we can create through human effort for a season, perhaps. But once again, there are always then unexpected seasons that throw us back and remind us that we may in fact need time and space um, for recovery, for um, balance, for um, embracing the difficult, the decline that inevitably is a part of a broken world. And uh, this is something that's often not reflected in our economics and how we kind of look at GDP and national growth and our economy. It's also reflected in the way I think that we treat relationships. I think we can get very impatient with um, periods of quiet or of stillness or stasis and and want to see productivity in these various realms of how are we interacting at church or how are we you know, building our neighborhood. And um, this is a time in which we are really being called to be still and to wait Mm -hmm. and to be patient with um, a very, very hard time. And I think that that is something that we're just going to have to relearn because we've gotten very unused to it. I think we we haven't had to do that probably as a society in, in quite a while. Yeah. Well, and so it feels really unnatural to us and uncomfortable. And I think it's you know, it would be wrong to not acknowledge that discomfort as being a real thing because we've all been very used to trying to evaluate that exponential growth. It makes me think of, I think I actually got this from a Wendell Berry essay, so I'm going to ask you about that in a moment, but um, the way that we describe humans and relationships and communities, when we describe them more as machines than as kind of organic or or environment-oriented, you know, machines have the same output every day or they increase and they act the same way all the time. Whereas, you know, when you're planting seeds in the ground, there, there's a time of, there is kind of a time of exponential growth that is the, is so much fun in gardening, right? When you all of a sudden see all of your plants, um, 
bloom and have fruit and that's delightful and beautiful. But like most of the time, if you were to think of people and societies like gardens rather than like machines, that is a very short amount of time. The rest of the time is resting and being cultivated or, um, or even dying. Like, you know, there's this whole kind of, yeah. Um, and I think that's just been something that has been a challenge to me is to think of, um, I am not a machine. The society we live in isn't a machine. We can't expect it to repeat itself over and over again with a saint with an increasing exhaustion. And, you know, machines crush things that don't go along with their seeds. Do you know what I mean? And, um, so I've been trying to kind of think, how can I rest into this as a season rather than, um, as a breaking of a cog, if that makes mm. sense. Yes. yes. Yeah. Okay. So, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. If you had, oh. I don't want to cut you off. I was just affirming. Yes. I love that. Such a good point. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So tell me a little more about your writing. Um, you said you, you write about, uh, agriculture and belonging and all these different things. Um, what was kind of the journey for you of ending up in, in where you're writing and where are some of the places people can find your writing? What are some of the pieces you're most proud of? I'll ask that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I started writing at the American Conservative straight out of college, which was a wonderful opportunity to steep myself in excellent intellectual scholarly journalism. Um, I'm very grateful for that extra education that it gave me. Um, but I have written as a freelancer for quite some time and I've written for some bigger places like the New York Times and the Washington Post, uh, the Weekly Standard back when it was still mm. in and then um, some smaller places that are just a delight that um, I love writing for like the University Bookman which does mm -hmm. reviews, um, Capita which is a uh, uh, site that's kind of geared toward exploring um, human flourishing in the realm of education and the care of children. And um, I'm trying to think of, of other places. I still write regularly for the American Conservative and for The Week. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's, it's just kind of a handful of places that I've really enjoyed working with editors who are parts of those publications. But some of my favorite pieces... Um, a lot of them have to do with kind of these connections between community, history, and current places. And so I wrote an essay for the American Conservative last year that explored the suburbanization of farmland hmm. and particular difficulties of that happening in a place that is desert because hmm. the entire western portion of the United States past the 100th meridian is technically desert. Um, it doesn't get the inches of rainfall required to qualify as anything else. But it's treated as if it's equal to, in terms of its aridity or, or water um, capabilities, as if it's equal to the east. And in fact, a lot of people I argue in my essay, try to remake the West in the pattern and image of the East. And that is, in my estimation, a very unconservative um, way of approaching a region that should be loved for its own sake and in its own particular way. Um, but I draw on the thought and writings of a scientist and explorer named John Wesley Powell to write this essay. And John Wesley Powell was someone who explored the West and put forward some 
really fascinating and important ideas for how it should be settled based on its actual particular geography, ecology, and water supply. And we really have just completely ignored his recommendations. And I think as we see the West go through a period of drought, it's becoming more and more important that we listen to voices like his, old as they are. Um, so that's one that I wrote that I really enjoyed. I have written about agricultural consolidation in the seed industry, which was one of my favorite essays I got to write because it was an exploration of what it means to cultivate seeds, why they matter. And it looked at the monopolization of seeds in the United States over the last hundred years or so. Um, so that was a really fascinating and fun piece that I got to write. And then another one that's perhaps less agriculturally oriented is um, an essay that I wrote also for the American Conservative about walking as loving. Mm. And it was kind of a, a consideration of the life of my grandfather, mm. who lived for 50 years or more in one town. And every single day he would walk the town and he would follow these various routes and I used to go out with him when I was a little girl and I would walk with him and he would tell me all the stories of this town that he loved. And it became clear to me as an adult that his walking was a liturgy that drew his heart more in tune with the community in which he lived and that helped him know it better. And mm -hmm. so I wanted to write something that looked at walking not as a form of pleasure or escape but rather as a, a really wonderful means of drawing our hearts to the soil and the ground in which we find ourselves and, and establishing rootedness in those communities. Mm, I love that. Have you, I'm curious, have you read any Robert McFarlane? I don't think so. <gasps> oh, Gracie, you're going to love Robert McFarlane. He literally oh. writes books about walking. And um, I, it's funny, I it came up when you were describing the first article that you're proud of that kind of, to me, it sounds like the heart behind what that author wrote being true or that researcher being true was because it was paying attention to the particularity of the land. And that a lot of times it feels like the mistakes we make are when we prescribe or say something should be true for a community or a section of land without actually knowing it. And a mm -hmm. part of knowing it is actually having to love it or to get to know it. And um, Robert McFarlane is a, he's an academic at Cambridge, but he's famous for writing these books about walking all around. And basically he walks, he does all these long walks, but he does them with people who are from the places where he's walking. Mm. And I just uh, finished The Old Ways. Um, and it was funny because I, I got it and I liked, he has this beautiful book for, um, for school children called... Um, lost words and it's this beautiful illustrations and he he worked this artist to to make it because um there was this they did a study where they realized that children school children in the uk were losing the language to describe very basic things in the natural world and their landscape so they were losing words like adder or you know to describe animals and and flora and fauna and so he made this beautifully illustrated book to help children kind of be enchanted by the landscape that they lived in. So he's very kind of focused on landscape and pilgrimage. And one of his central ideas is that the landscapes we live in and walk on shape kind of how we understand and describe our internal landscapes. Mm -hmm. And um, that who we are, there's kind of a reciprocal relationship with who we are 
and the lands or the places that we live and walk in. And that the places, the less that we are actually in touch with that in the very tangible way of walking through them, the less we see them as living, loving, like worth loving places, but also the less access we kind of have to our own interior worlds because we have less of a, a language of self and a language of landscape to describe um, our internal world. So it's just really fascinating. But I think I have always been really fascinated by that idea that to actually do well by a place, by a particular, by a particular place, you had to treat it as a particular place and to treat it as a particular place, you have to love it and know it. And I think walking can seem like, again, we get to get very functionally getting here from there, but it's also a way of of knowing and loving and integrating yourself into a place and making that place be integrated into you. Um, mm. But yeah, Robert McFarland's great. You should read him. Um, I have to read his work. He sounds absolutely uh, like the perfect author for me to be reading right now. I've been so fascinated by this concept lately of plant blindness mm. and plant illiteracy, which is basically just a weakening understanding of um native plants and but also also of plants in general I don't know how many um, people get the education in horticulture and wild things that I feel like I got as as a little girl Um, and it's also true that as we move around to different places it requires a re-education because what is natural perhaps where we grew up might not be um, native to the area in which we move. So for instance, moving from Idaho to Virginia, um, I went from knowing every wildflower in the Idaho mountains yeah. to realizing that I did not actually know what poison ivy looked like. And in Virginia, it is everywhere. So I had to become literate in the horticulture and the ecology of this new place in which I lived. So I think that concept is so fascinating and important. And I'm very curious to see what authors do to kind of bridge that gap and build our education and our literacy. Because it's also important to literature. If you think about C.S. Lewis's work or um, Gene Stratton Porter, um, a lot of old authors, their works are overflowing with references to flora and fauna. And can you imagine trying to read a book like Girl of the Limberlost, mm-hmm. if you didn't know the names of the trees and if you didn't know the difference between a cedar and an oak or something like that, it would impair your ability to understand the actual story in a way that is full and beautiful. Well, and I think that I, I love thinking about imagination and how imagination kind of forms our sense of self because there's this part in Old Ways where he's talking about the sailor who described, he's describing his kind of this like period of difficulty in his life. And all the ways that he describes it are like seafaring. He says, you know, I lost my moors or I was this or that. Kind of showing that we, to be able to understand ourselves, we have to have metaphors. And the way that we kind of furnish ourselves with metaphors is by the worlds that we live in. And so the less we are acquainted, it sounds, it can sound romanticized, but the less that we are acquainted with the particularities of the places we live, the less we have to grasp onto as we're trying to explain and understand ourselves and others. It's funny, I was thinking about this the other day because, um, about kind of, I guess you call it plant blindness, um, here because, you know, we're allowed one walk a day, but that's just like not a whole lot at the moment. And so 
we have a little garden um, that our, our landlord insists that they're still able to keep up. So we get the pleasure of the garden without actually having to look after it. And I was pacing around it like a crazy person the other day because I was bored and I'd been inside all day. And, um, and as I did that, I started to just notice the intense fecundity this little 10 foot square space could have, you know, and I started to see like dozens and dozens of, if you'd asked me, I could have been like, yeah, well, I think there's like this plant and that plant. And I probably would have named like six or seven, but I realized there are dozens of different plants and grasses and flowers and snails and this and that all in this tiny little space. And I found this, um, this feather and I took a picture of it and I put it on my Patreon because I, I couldn't figure out what it was because I thought, well, we have lots of seagulls and we have lots of pigeons, but this doesn't look like a pigeon or a, or a um, you know, seagull feather. And it turned out that it was a sandpiper, which makes sense because we have sandpipers. There's these weird birds with noses that look like straws and they stick them all, they're like quite long and they stick them into the ground. Um, but it was just, it was a moment of illumination to think about how much life and diversity and particularity there was in my little 10 foot square garden. And, um, I don't know, it was, it was a really interesting thing. Um, and, uh, so it makes me want to go spend more time in my garden. Yeah. Um, okay. So I want to ask you about something. So a few, uh, gosh, time blends together in my mind, but I think a year or two ago you did, uh, like a correspondence interview with Wendell Berry that was in, was it the New York times? Yes. Yep. Yes. Um, tell me about that. What was that like? How did you end up doing that? Was it enjoyable for you? And what did you all talk about? Oh my goodness. Words cannot express how <laughs> sweet and wonderful that opportunity was. But, um, so I met Wendell Berry for the first time back in 2014. He spoke, as a keynote at a, a conference that I went to in Louisville. And it was one of those things where I had read his work at that point for several years and absolutely and, adored it. Well, and I was to say, we should probably, I should probably give an introduction. Tell us a little bit about Wendell Berry for anyone who wouldn't know him to begin with. Yes. Um, so Wendell Berry grew up in Kentucky and was the son of a lawyer and uh, part of a family in a community that was very agricultural. And he went to college and then ended up getting a fellowship in California, uh, a Guggenheim fellowship that sent him to Italy. And then he started teaching in New York. So he kind of launched this brilliant career alongside his wife, Tanya. But when he was in New York, he felt this longing for his homeland of Kentucky and felt that he wanted and in fact needed to go home. And so they moved away from their New York security and all of the prestige that they had built up for themselves moved back to Kentucky. He taught there for quite some time and they got a little summer house that was um, in an agricultural area that they ended up eventually turning into their full-time farm. And um, he has been there ever since, rooted in the county where he was born in this community that he has now loved for decades. And all of his work, his poetry, his essays, his novels, are all built around the questions of rootedness and membership that are very particular to and important to 
this community that he loves. And so I, I would probably describe him as one of the most faithful writers in mm. um, American literature and someone who explores that concept of faithfulness constantly in the poems and the essays and the novels that he writes. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, and I think that's something that I found really compelling when I read his work was I think there are many ways in which our world feels very unrooted. And um, I think a lot of people have a desire to be faithful to a place, but it almost feels like an impossibility to be faithful to a place because most of us haven't, most of us don't have the, you know, the real Port Royal um, to return to. But reading his work kind of appeals to this deep desire to belong, to be faithful to something and appeals to a real need, I think, um, that we feel a real desire that feels impossible, um, but is still important. And it's um, kind of, it seems like the impossible thing that must be done in our world. So yeah, mm -hmm. so what was it like to do the correspondence and how did that begin? Yes. So after I met him, um, I asked at that point if we could write letters back and forth and if I could do a Q&A with him. And he said yes. So my first Q&A with him was back in February 2015. It came out in the American Conservative. And it was kind of um, a consideration of uh, what he thought about Christianity, about um, conservative thought and about the political parties in our moment. Um, there were a lot of questions we explored regarding war um, and and the Christian call to peace, as well as what it meant to be a faithful member of, of your place. And one of my favorite quotes from that interview is when he told me that, you know, political labels mean very little to him because he is not running for office. He is free to be an amateur. And I love that concept of um, amateur being rooted in the Latin word for love, being free to just love the place that you are in and to, as we mentioned earlier, bring a very particular nonpartisan gaze to the problems that it encounters, being free to love it the way it needs to be loved, regardless of whatever a party line might ask you to do in, um, in faith to its um, ideology or party line. So um, after that interview, after that Q&A came out, I told him about um, my grandfather and great-grandfather who were both farmers and how I felt this pull at my soul to write about the place where I grew up and the people who had loved and lived faithfully there. And he wrote me back and he said, you know, whatever you end up writing, make sure that it is about your family and your experience as a member of that family. And I took that seriously, seriously enough to start a book about it. Um, but I kind of would write an occasional letter to him, uh, maybe once a year or so, just expressing thanks for his work or asking a question. And he would always write back. He's mm. one of the kindest souls, most humble and kind souls I've ever met. Um, there's no reason he had to write me back, but he always would. Um, and so then when I got asked by the New York Times to write something for them, I had an editor there reach out to me. I told them that really the only thing I wanted to do was a, another Q&A with Wendell Berry, this time kind of about <laughs> the farm bill and these questions of our agricultural landscape. And so I reached out to him again, and we started this correspondence that turned into that Q&A. 
Um, and it was just a long process of exploring these questions and then piecing together his responses. And then because he does everything over mail, it's just a lot slower and he prefers it that way. He thinks, and I agree, that the content is much deeper and more thoughtful because it happens slowly. So after I had pulled everything together, I sent him a copy for his approval. Um, and he called me over the phone, um, which was so strange to have, you know, <laughs> to pick up the phone and have Wendell Berry on the other end. But he, um, he said that he liked what I had sent him. And he said, well, Gracie, I am so thankful or I am so grateful to you. And it, once again, just to paint a picture of how humble and kind he is with his words and actions, I, I wasn't quite sure how or why he would be grateful to me when I felt like I just had infinite amounts of gratitude to him. Yeah. <laughs> but how, that's how he expresses himself is through gratitude, humility, and, and endless kindness. So, yes. Mm. Yeah. Oh, wow. What a remarkable experience. And I was... Um, on one of the last podcasts I did a few days ago, I was we were talking about how how life can kind of be lived in faithfulness to significant moments. And I feel like having Wendell Berry, who has lived his life so faithfully and so graciously, having him speak into your life like that must be kind of one of those moments that you want to live faithfully to. Um, I, I feel like it would be hard not to write a book about your family if Wendell Berry told you you should. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's a very, yeah. And, and I would know as well that there have been moments where I, I, I don't like writing about myself. And so yeah. I've chased against that and I've struggled with it. And what I find so interesting is that my editor, my friends, my old journalism professor, my husband have all said, these are the parts of the book that we like best. Mm. And so I think it's really fascinating too, how that initial piece of advice has continued to prove true, um, in, in the way that it's reaffirmed by other people. So yeah, it's really interesting. You know, it's interesting. I think I, I understand that feeling of not liking to write about yourself. It's as old as Anna Green Gables and Little Women, isn't it? The write about what you know. Um, and there can be different reasons for not wanting to write about your own, about yourself or your own experience. Um, I know for me, it's usually, I just don't like, our world is so exposed and, and everyone, uh, I don't like the idea of like making something that's so personal to me known to the whole world. Um, because I feel like sometimes we kind of treat information or stories like something that we can get something out of. But at the mm -hmm. same time, if we're trying to reach those, those things which are most true and most faithful and the closest to the truth, then the places where we're going to find that are going to be in our stories. And so it's such a process to try to figure out how to share those well in, in a way that feels like it's faithful and has integrity and doesn't just feel like using our stories. Do you find that to be a struggle? Oh, yeah. Yes. And I think what I have been learning as I work on my book is that I think the the spirit in which um, writing about yourself can be useful mm -hmm. is that in which you are kind of just presenting a lens that you hope will be of use to the reader, but it's not necessarily meant to, um, to be, um, self-promoting or to yeah. kind of carry a brand, a brand. And I think it's more about trying to help them love something that mm. you 
else um, or to fear something you fear um, and giving them the very personal reasons for that being so because once again um, love is love is a, a symptom uh, symptoms maybe not the right word but but an effect of um, particularity and long knowledge and long faithfulness and so to some extent for instance if I'm writing about this community in the middle of nowhere there's really no way to help readers understand why they should care about that community unless I show them what it meant and means to me and then begin to build the case through those very specific instances in which I learned to love it through my own faithfulness to it um, and the faithfulness of others to it and so I think that lens that it gives can help us grow affections maybe that otherwise we would not be able to feel yeah I think that's such a good point it's kind of like if you were I don't know if I were to tell someone about try to get them to love St. Andrews um, if I were just to tell them landmarks or various kind of you know factual reasons it would not awaken that that connection and like you said, those affections in someone as if I could tell them the stories of why I have come to love this place and how it's incorporated me into what it is. And, um, and I think that's always kind of our, our battle, especially, you know, we started off talking about kind of being invited into slower life and into the particularities of things. And I think to capture those particularities, you have to get close to it. You have to love and to do that, you have to tell stories. Um, Mm -hmm. So something I've been thinking is I've been trying to provide people with kind of here are good soul filling things you can enjoy and read. And I do feel like, um, especially as we're all trying to embrace this kind of slower life, this kind of weird rhythm that we're not used to in these difficult times, there is no one that I think who could be more soul filling, uh, in that regard, maybe than when some of Wendell Berry's writings. Mm -hmm. So if you were to send people towards some of his writings, what would you tell them to read? To, to begin with? Yes. Um, oh, it's such a, a good mm. question. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Sorry, my <laughs> four-year-old woke up, and so she's giving me wonderful presents that she's coloring. <laughs> well, that's pretty cool. I wish I had a four-year-old giving me wonderful presents. Oh. <laughs> um, so in terms of his novels, his fiction, I think two that always stand out to me as just beautiful poetic works are... Hannah Coulter, which is uh, a novel told from the perspective of a woman who grows up through this community. And it is a story of her long faithfulness to that community and a beautiful story, too, of motherhood and care um, and caretaking for a place and a people and for little ones. Um, Another is Jaber Crow, which is the story of a man who comes to Port William perhaps as an outsider but grows roots in its soil and he um, is just this beautiful picture of of loving without expectation of reward, uh, of agape love for community. And I, I really love all the uh, the beautiful details of that work. And um mm. There's a little bit at the end of it about a graveyard in which uh, Wendell Berry writes of um, presences past um, and absences that we feel even after they're gone. There's this idea of hauntedness, of the past always being present 
in Wendell Berry's work of this community of this membership that is not just living but also dead. And I think mm. it's very eye-opening to think about the world through that lens and his work helps us do that. My own personal novel by Wendell Berry is Remembering. <gasps> is much shorter and it's one of his more autobiographical works which I think interestingly enough again talking about these writings that flow from personal experience it's really interesting that that is my absolute favorite of his um, and it's it's the story of Andy Catlett who has come back to his community after a period of exodus but then goes through this period of crisis and he is tempted to leave, and then it's about his journey back home again. And there are all these echoes, I believe, of Dante and T.S. Eliot all through mm. it. Really fun to to look out for. Um, and it's just absolutely gorgeous. It's so poetic. Um, in terms of Wendell Berry's actual poetry, I've been loving his Sabbath poems. There's a work a book of them called This Day. And um, would you mind if I read one, a little tiny one? It's just I would so love for you to read one. Oh, good. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so this, this is it. Learn by little the desire for all things, which perhaps is not desire at all, but undying love, which perhaps is not love at all, but gratitude for the being of all things, which perhaps is not gratitude at all, but the maker's joy in what is made, the joy in which we come to rest. Mom, do you know what this story is about? <laughs> What's it about? It's about Alice in Wonderland. Ooh, that's Ooh. nice. Can you be a little quieter? Okay, yes. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> You're good. Oh, um, that is... Um, that is so beautiful, and I have really taken shelter in some of Wendell Berry's poetry. Um, there's also something I love about his writing that we maybe haven't talked about is he, I always feel like he has a righteous and a holy kind of grumpiness um, that I find very <laughs> consoling, <laughs> um, and I, I really enjoy that about his writing too. It's deep and it's simple and it's um, but it's also it also has a grumpiness, which I sometimes feel necess is necessary in our world. And I, it's funny that you mentioned remembering uh, that is definitely, I think one of my favorites of his. And the line that always sticks out to me is the bit where he says, um, I was held though I did not hold. And mm -hmm. that that's kind of the picture of what it is to truly belong somewhere is that a community is something that it's not like we're all grasping onto each other really tight because if we let go, we might be flown to the winds, but that, it exists to have us belong to it, even when we're kind of pushing against it or struggling or not perfect. Um, and that is, that has described the deepest relationships in my life. And it also describes, I think, fundamentally how, how God loves us and reminds us that, that the places that we live and, and the families that we love can become manifestations of that love that holds, though we do not hold. And um, it's such a beautiful book. And it's short, too, so it's easy, easy, easy to read. It's kind of um, stream of consciousness at moments. It feels more modern uh, yes. than some of his other ones. Um, I think Hannah Coulter was the first one I read, and I remember really loving it. And that one's interesting because it's over the whole course of a life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Oh, well, Gracie, it's been so much fun to have this conversation with you. Where, if people want to find your, your beautiful writing, where should they follow you, look for you? Oh, and tell people about your, um, your newsletter. Yes. Um, so I am on Twitter at Gracie Olmstead. Gracie with a Y. It's kind of like N with an E, except <laughs> Gracie with a Y. G-R-A-C-Y. Um, and then also on Instagram as Gracie Writes and on Facebook as just Gracie Olmstead. Um, my newsletter is called Granola and it's full of all the little bits of things that I love and that I think draw our souls to the true, the good, the beautiful, um, place, community, books, recipes, um, considerations of agriculture and, and ecology. And that comes out monthly, although I've been trying to maybe make it twice a month during this very strange season. I asked my readers if they might like more content or if they already felt overwhelmed. And the consensus seemed to be that everyone was overwhelmed with bad content and they wanted more things to make them happy. So that is <laughs> cool, is to put more things out in the world to make people happy as much and in so far as I am able. <laughs> that is a wonderful goal. And that's, that's how I, that's what I wanted to do with these escape casts was to give, give more opportunities to rejoice. Um, ah, a good Wendell Berry line, rejoice though we have considered all the facts mm. um, and rejoice together. Um, I have enjoyed reading your granola newsletters and, and just all of your writing. And so I hope people will go and, and find, um, more of your, your beautiful things online. I thought I might close us uh, by reading another Wendelberry uh, poem. Um, oh, good. <laughs> yes. So Get thank you. as many as we can. <laughs> I know. We need them. They're, they are balm to the soul. So thank you so much for being on the show, Gracie. And I will end today with a classic Wendelberry poem, The Peace of Wild Things. Mm. When despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be. I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day blind stars waiting for their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. 